portion of God's word that we'll focus our attention on this morning comes from the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of our God. Please be seated. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our risen redeemer. Amen. Body language. How much can you learn from watching someone's body language? The word language in that phrase would seem to suggest that with our bodies we can communicate a whole lot of things. The way we hold our faces, the way we move our arms and legs can, can say a lot. If a person's walking down the street and they have a pep in their step and their posture is upright and they have a smile on their face and they're waving and saying hello to everyone that they pass, just by their body language alone, you're probably going to assume that person is having a good day and maybe you're even thinking, I, I want what they have. I want to be like that. Then again, if you see somebody who's walking all slunched down and kind of mopey looking face and they're dragging their feet as they walk, maybe you start to wonder, I wonder what's got them so down. You can learn a lot just by watching the way a person walks. We're looking at the prophet Micah today. It's from that section of short prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament that we often call the minor prophets, not because they're somehow less important than the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but Isaiah and Jeremiah are really long and books like Micah are very short. I read through Micah this week. It took me about, I don't know, 16, 17 minutes to read through it. It's seven chapters. It's not very long at all. If you wanted, you could think of the book of Micah like three sermons. And that's when the young people think, well, why does one of our sermons have to be 15, 20, 30 minutes long? Why can't we have sermons that are 5 to 10 minutes long like Micah's? That'd be nice if we had real short ones. Maybe someday. But not today. Three sermons, chapters 1 and 2 is the first sermon. Chapters 3, 4, 5, second sermon. Chapter 6 and 7 is the third sermon. The first sermon's a little unbalanced for us. A lot of law. A lot of law. All of chapter 1 and pretty much all of chapter 2, it's God showing the Israelites who lived in Micah's day all their sins. But at the very end of Micah chapter 2, there's this very beautiful section that, in a sense, echoes Psalm 23. The Lord is promising to shepherd his people Israel, yes, in spite of this laundry list of sins, all these things we just discussed, I'm still going to be your shepherd. I'm still going to bring you to green pastures. I'm still going to lead you to peace. Then chapters 3, 4, and 5 is a little more balanced. Again, chapter 3 is heavy on the law, 
But chapter 4 is pretty much all gospel, all God promising to love and rescue his people, to give them better days, to to give them a future. And then chapter 5 is this famous section of Micah's words that we often quote on Christmas. Right? But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Beautiful words promising the Savior. Right? And now our section begins the, the third and final sermon. But we have verses 6, 7, and 8. So what I wanted to start by doing was walking you through verses 1 through 5. And if you have a Bible in your pew, you're welcome to use it. Maybe you have one on your phone. Otherwise, you could just follow along as I read. So the first verse, this is Micah speaking to the people. He says, listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. It's an interesting section. Micah is saying, all right, the Lord has a case to make. And as witnesses, the mountains and hills around you, they've been watching, they've been seeing what you've been doing all these years. I'm going to make my case before the witnesses. Verse 2, most Bibles put quotation marks now. This is the Lord speaking through Micah to his people. He says, Hear you mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. So now the scene is set. We are in the courtroom of the Lord. And what's the Lord doing? He's bringing a case directly against the people in Israel. Verse 3 begins, My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. We didn't get to do this together because we were during lockdown during Holy Week. But if you got to watch our Good Friday service, you might have remembered that these words were in it. At the end, there was a section called the reproaches. And every reproach begins with this kind of concept where God says to us, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. God's case can be summed up as this. Let's think through all that I've done for you. When have I earned the behavior that you are demonstrating? Of course, the answer is, well, never. And now God's going to walk through a couple of examples, a, a timeline, if you will, of different things that he has done for the Israelites that certainly do not warrant the kind of behavior that the Israelites have been demonstrating. And he starts with something that you're all probably very familiar with. He says, I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Go all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, and you Sunday school kids, you've probably learned the lesson of of Joseph, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, getting sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph gets sent down to Egypt. And for many, many years, he's a slave. He has a master. He's doing really well as a slave. And then he gets thrown in jail for something he didn't even do. But God used it for good. He, He eventually got Joseph out of prison, by answering a Pharaoh's plea to understand a dream. And Joseph was put in a high position, and he was honored in the land, and he helped Egypt through a terrible seven-year drought, a terrible famine. And during that famine, all of Jacob's family moved down to Egypt. They were blessed by Joseph, and they were fed. 
and they stayed there. And their descendants grew and grew and grew. And a long time down the road, a pharaoh who had long forgotten what Joseph had done for the people of of Egypt saw this large group of people who were different from them and saw them as a threat and put shackles on them, enslaved them, and made them work for nothing. God says, remember how you were in slavery? Remember how I freed you from slavery under the leadership of Moses and Aaron and Miriam? I brought you out of Egypt safely through the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army pursued you. They drowned, you lived. From slavery to freedom. Remember that? Remember that, Israel? The next two examples are pretty obscure, though. I'm going to have to tell you the story again. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, plotted? And what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? So you might remember the people of Israel, they came out of Egypt, they wandered around in the desert for 40 years, but when it was time for them to enter the promised land, they went by some other nations. One of them was Moab. Some of the nations would come out and try to attack the Israelites. This king said, I got a better idea. Instead of going to war with this massive group of people, I'm going to find a prophet to rain down curses on them. And so he finds this pagan prophet named Balaam. And he essentially hires Balaam to go curse the Israelites. But God makes it so that every word Balaam speaks, nothing but blessings for God's people. Try as he might to curse this massive group of people, he can only speak blessings. And God says, remember that? Remember that time I brought you out of Egypt and even your enemies who tried to curse you, it resulted in nothing but blessings for you? Do you remember that? The third one is is horrifying and beautiful all at the same time. God says, remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? Remember that? If your Bible's like mine, in the middle, there will be all these little book chapter verse references. And they correspond with little superscript letters, tiny little letters in the upper right-hand corner of a word that tell you, hey, there's a, a note, go look at it. And next to the words Shatim and Gilgal, there's references where you could go read about it because you and I probably have no idea what does he mean by this? Remember the journey from Shatim to Gilgal? No, I don't. Enlighten me. Well, there's a little note here that says we should go to Numbers 25, verse 1. Numbers 25, verse 1 is right after the account of Balaam and Balak. God's people are still near the Moabites. And the Moabites had a false god that was a fertility god. And you worship that God by sleeping with another human being. And the Moabite women got it in their heads that the best way they could worship their God was to go try to sleep with all the foreigners who were traveling by. And so that's what they did. And a whole bunch of the Israelite men took them up on their offer. God was pretty upset about it, as you could imagine. One guy in particular was killed on the spot But God says, you remember that? Remember how you treated me? After I brought you up out of Egypt, after I showered blessings down on you, immediately after that, you remember what you did? Started sleeping with everybody in sight? Remember what I did? That you may remember the righteous acts of the Lord? Do you remember what I did? I didn't destroy you. I forgave you. And I blessed you. 
I took you to Gilgal, the place where you camped right before you went into Jericho and began conquering the land that I promised to your forefathers. So track this through. Slavery to freedom. Curses to blessing. Horrible, open, public sin. Shame, shame, shame. No, forgiveness. More blessing. My people, what have I done to you? Nothing but love you and bless you and forgive you. And what have you done to me? I summarized it before. I didn't really give you details, but all of chapter one and most of chapter two list all these things that they've been doing wrong. Chapter three, again, all these different sins. Maybe you go read it this week and and see for yourself all the different things that they were doing, but for today's purposes, they had completely forgotten what God had done for them. Yeah, it was a long time ago. I get that. For you and me, it would be like looking back to something that God did for your relatives in the 1300s. I can't trace my lineage back that far. I don't know. Maybe some of you can. I I could trace my ancestors back to the mid-1800s. That's about as far as I can go. I have no idea who my ancestors were living in the 1300s. No clue. But these people did. They knew what God had done for their, for their relatives 700 years before. They completely forgot about it. And like spoiled children who grew up in a very wealthy family and never earned anything for themselves, they just kind of think that they deserve God's love. That the reason God showed blessings to their ancestors must have been because their ancestors were better than all those other people living around them. Wasn't the case. God must love us because we're better than all the people living around us. Wasn't the case. God must love us because we're doing things right and they're all doing it wrong. No, it wasn't, wasn't the case. Chapter 2, God says, you're not walking proudly anymore. I won't allow it. It tells you all you need to know. In Micah's day, the people of God were walking around proudly, acting as though they deserved everything that God had done for them and promised to do for them in Christ. And God says, no more. What have I done to deserve this proud behavior? It's not going to happen anymore. And that's when Micah starts speaking in our text, the, the portion that's printed for you in your folder. So now Micah's speaking back to the people who have just heard the Lord's charges against them. And he says, what, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? What do you think, Israelites? Will that fix it? If we take our our best male cow, the the one that has the potential to become a a great, strong bull that can father many, many calves, if we give that up to the Lord, that great potential, that great potential value to us, if we give it up, will that take care of this? Is that all we need to do now is give the Lord the best cow we have? How about thousands of rams? Forget the one. What if we go get thousands of male sheep? Not the potential of one, the potential of a thousand. If you were a shepherd and you had a thousand male rams, how many new sheep could those rams produce? fathering offspring year after year after year after year after year. 
How much exponential growth could we see in a flock with a thousand rams? What if we gave that all up to the Lord? Would that kind of value fix our problem? How about 10,000 rivers of olive oil? We were out of olive oil a couple weeks ago. I got sent to the store and I was doing the math, trying to figure out which one's the best, looking for the little stickers that tell you price per ounce or however they measure it so that you can really get an idea which one's the best value. And I was really proud of myself because I was comparing all the big bottles and, and I found that the rectangular like tin thing was the best deal of all. It was even better deal than the bulk plastic one that we normally get. So I came home with this big funky looking bottle. I had to figure out how to open it. Let's say that that's one, one river of olive oil. How about 10,000? Do you know how long it would take to make 10,000 cartons of olive oil? To press the olives? To squeeze out every little... How many olives it would take? How many trees it would take to produce that many olives so that you could have 10,000 quantities of olive oil? The animals are valuable, no doubt, but that's that's a lot of work too. That's a lot of value too. Would, Would that do it? Would that kind of value just given away to the Lord, would that cover our sin? Let's keep going up the escalator here. How about something even more valuable? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What could be more valuable than a firstborn child? What if we take that child and sacrifice him, sacrifice her to the Lord? Would that be enough to make up for all we've done? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. A good Lutheran ear says, wait a minute. The solution to sin is not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us. So what's up with this? Micah turns around to the people and says, No, we shouldn't be sacrificing things to the Lord, but then he seems to give a list of three things that we should be doing. At least that's what it sounds like, right? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly. What is this actually saying? The Hebrew is interesting. When you you dig into it, they're, they're real simple phrases. The first one, it says to do judgment. What does that mean, to do judgment? Judgment. We've talked about this quite a bit, the courtroom setting, the conscience, how God is asking us to compare what we think, say, do, and feel to our conscience, to the word of God. That's really what this is. He's saying, do judgment. Always compare everything in your life, everything in the world around you, compare it all to the word of God, and then make a judgment. What is it? What's the revelation? What's the verdict? What do you learn Well, what would we learn as we compare our lives to God's word? We're going to see examples of sin in our life. It's not going to allow us to walk around proudly, right? It's not going to allow us to walk around and think that God loves us because of something special in us. No, it's going to lead us to see the truth about ourselves. It's going to lead us to see good things for what they are and bad things for what they are. When a brother or sister in Christ is selfless, when they give of themselves to serve our needs, to serve the needs of others, we'll compare that to God's word and we'll say, this is good. 
This is a blessing. We'll applaud good things that we see. We'll look down on wickedness in our own lives, in the lives of others. We'll have an accurate view of the world by comparing everything to what God's word says. The second part, to to love mercy, is even more interesting. It's a common word for love, followed by another word for love that usually only points to God. It says love chesed. Chesed is one of the first Hebrew words we learn at Martin Luther College. It's a word that points to God, that describes God. It could be described faithfulness, unfailing love. It's the faithful love of God. And so what's he saying? Do judgment, see the things around you for what they are, see your own heart accurately by comparing it to God's word, and then love God's unfailing love. What was demonstrated as God walked through the little historical recap? Reality, slavery, God's unfailing love, freedom. Reality, enemies, threats, God's unfailing love in blessings. Reality, awful sin, awful, disgusting sin. God's unfailing love, forgiveness. Do judgment, see things for what they are. Be honest about your sin and the way the world is around you. Don't look at it with rose-colored glasses and say, ah, it's gonna get better tomorrow. No, see it for what it is as you compare things to God's word and then love God's unfailing love. Walk humbly with God. You see, to walk humbly with God is to do the first two things. It's to understand the world around you in light of what God's word says. To be honest about the sin in your life. To be honest about what the world is really like. To lean on God and his unfailing love and his unfailing love alone. Not to walk around proud thinking that God loves you because of something in you, but to realize God's grace, that he loves you because of who he is. Prophet Micah sums this up so beautifully in the last words of this book. Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Micah closes by appealing to God's love, his mercy, his forgiveness. There's a lot of wills in there. And he appeals to God's promise. Because Micah is not just looking back at the track record of God's love. He's looking forward to the promises that God has made. That Micah believed by God's grace through a heart of faith. You're going to keep these promises too. The one who's going to be born in Bethlehem. You're going to send him just like you said. He's going to tread all of our sins underfoot. He's going to hurl them into the heart of the sea. Just like you promised, Lord, you will once again have mercy even on us, spoiled, rotten kids who've taken your grace for granted. You will 
Have mercy on us. You will forgive us. You will love us as you promised. What does this mean for us here at Mount Olive? We have the privilege of looking back and seeing all these things fulfilled. We know Christ. We know God's promised Messiah. We know the one who was born in Bethlehem just as God promised, who lived a life that we failed to live, who was always perfectly humble, who never walked proudly, who suffered the death that we deserve for our proud sins, who defeated death once and for all by by rising from the dead. We look back at the one who is the fulfillment of all God's promises and we have an even greater track record than Micah could point to. We have all of God's love and forgiveness, the freedom that he had promised and won for us in Christ. We see it all. And so what does God ask of us? Do judgment. Honestly look at God's word. Compare it to our lives and the world around us. Love, God's unfailing love. Walk humbly with him. That's what we do. We can be honest about our sins. You could come to me and talk about your weaknesses. You could go to your spouse. You could go to your mom and dad. You could go to your brother and sister. You can talk about things that you're struggling with. You don't have to bottle it up and gut it like our American culture says you should. No. Walking humbly with God means you get to talk to your brothers and sisters about your sin. You don't have to worry about being judged and condemned. You're just going to be forgiven. Because as you confess your sins and your weaknesses to your brothers and sisters in Christ, after we do judgment together, we're going to love God's unfailing love together. We're going to assure one another that your sins are forgiven just like mine are forgiven. We're going to walk humbly together. And people will notice because you could tell a lot about a person by the way that they walk. And so here at Mount Olive, we're going to do all we can to be honest about our sin with one another, to love God's unfailing love and forgive one another. We're going to walk humbly with our God. And when people notice and want to learn more about us, we're going to welcome them in with open arms. We're going to love them and care for them and teach them and baptize their children and baptize adults and give them Lord's Supper. We're going to bring them in and welcome them and they'll join us in humbly walking with our God. Amen.